Hey there Desi Crime fans. I am Ishwarya and welcome back to another episode of the Desi Crime podcast. This podcast is run by 220 year olds and supported by an amazing team at Lost Debate. When you contribute to our Patreon or share us with your friends, you too become a part of our team. So if you have the means, please contribute to our Patreon and if you don't, please share our episodes and posts on your social media. Be a loyal Desi crew member. Go to www.patreon.com/desicrime. For helping gather information for this episode, we would also like to specifically mention Michael Friscolanti and his book titled The Shafia Honor Killing Trial. Invaluable excerpts from the book have been cited throughout this episode. We would also like to thank our latest patrons, Sara Aziz, Venkata Malanini, Nupur Kapoor, Alisha and Dhruv Ruparel. Thank you for showing your love. Your contribution helps sustain this show. A brother, a mother and father are grieving their daughter's deaths. It appears that Zainab, Seher and Geeti died in a bizarre accident. Their black Nissan was found drowned in a lock in Kingston, Canada. But police questioning and investigation unfolds this accident more, suggesting inklings of something way more sinister. Could the grieving family be an act? Do Hamid, Shafia and Tuba know more than they are telling? Find out in part 2 of the Desi Crime podcast's episode on the Shafia family murders. So you all in today's episode it's just me. Aryan is on a break all the way in Scotland and so it's just me and you today talking about what is perhaps the most insanely twisted family murder story I have ever heard. Just to give you all a little recap of what we know so far. We know that in the Kingston Lock in Canada which is essentially a body of water a Nissan Sentra was found drowned. From inside the car four people's bodies were recovered 19-year-old Zainab her 17-year-old sister Seher her 13-year-old younger sister Geeti and their 52-year-old nanny Rona and just as we were all about to leave the last episode thinking Aryan had shocked us enough he told us that Rona the children's nanny and housekeeper was actually Shafia's first wife she was a Shafia herself So Shafia had two wives in Canada which is obviously illegal and now his first wife and three daughters were found dead after what sounded like an incredibly bizarre and erratic road trip to Niagara Falls. The police were initially sympathetic to the Shafia family. They seemed normal, well-to-do and respectable people by every standard and they had just lost four members of their family to a freak accident. The police were trying to be as understanding as they could. 
But slowly, as the interrogation of the remaining Shafias continued, their story made less and less sense. The sympathies of the police turned into suspicion and soon enough, they found evidence, albeit circumstantial and not necessarily incriminating, of Rona being Shafia's wife. Now something definitely felt wrong to the police. But what does it mean for Rona to be Shafia's wife? Why is it a big deal? In trying to understand this anomaly, we end up answering an even bigger question. How did four women mysteriously die in a drowned black car? And the answer is in history, the Shafia family's history. It's all fun and games to learn about these people as individuals, but to understand anything about the lives they lived, we need to know their relationship with each other. For that, let's turn back our clocks all the way to the 1950s and our phone's geolocation all the way to Kabul in Afghanistan, where the main characters of our story met, or I suppose were forced to meet. Here, Mohammad Shafia was born, born to a middle-class family in a country that was soon to be engulfed in a terrible civil war, Shafia had an incredibly ordinary childhood. In fact, he never even reached the 7th grade. The odds were against him making it big. But despite his lack of education, Shafia was known to be an incredible businessman and entrepreneur. According to the book titled The Shafia Honor Killing Trial by Michael Friscolanti, quote, Shafia was gifted and ambitious, a stingy dealmaker who turned a small electronics shop into a multi-million dollar import-export operation. His specialties were Panasonic radios and Peacock brand thermoses shipped in from Japan, end quote. When Shafia was of marriageable age, like all Desi parents, his mother began to search for a suitable bride for him. Arranged marriage was the custom of the time after all. And Shafia's mother knew she had found her bride the day she laid her eyes on Rona Amir, a beautiful-looking young woman who was the daughter of a respected retired army colonel. Rona maintained a diary, one that she continued to keep till that fateful day when the diary lost its author. The diary was uncovered in the police investigation and was used as a key piece of evidence in figuring out what truly happened. I was able to find excerpts from the diary written by Rona in Dari, which I'll be quoting from time to time. Rona writes, quote, Shafia's mother invited all of us to her house so that her son could have a good look at me. After our visit, her son announced his consent. Rona was also asked for her consent by one of her brothers, and her answer was a simple yet telling one. Quote, Give me a way in marriage if he is a good man. Don't if he is not. End quote. The couple got married in February 1979 at Kabul's Intercontinental Hotel in what was a flashy wedding by every standard. Go over to our Instagram at Desi Crime to see pictures of the wedding, pictures of the couple looking happy and in love, standing beside each other. The pictures show Rona in her beautiful and long blue and frilly gown and Shafia in a purple suit and long sideburns, quintessential for 80s fashion. Their wedding cake was flashy too. It was three layers covered in pink and yellow icing. If you see any of these pictures from their wedding, this couple could be any of us, smiling and excited to begin a new phase of their life. 
but those smiles were never seen again on those two faces after june 30th 2009 for most their wedding is a yay hashtag i got married moment but that wasn't the case for rona and if we want to look for why rona and her kids were killed it all began with this marriage Herein lies the answer as described by Rona in her diary. Quote, after getting married, my lot in life began a downward spiral. End quote. According to Friscolanti in his book, sadly, Rona was unable to conceive. For years, she and Shafia tried to have children, even traveling to India for repeated fertility treatments. You all know the amount of foreigners that come to India for medical treatment is actually unbelievable. We complain about so many things but honestly after living in the US I can't help but reminisce about India's healthcare system which is so much less complicated to navigate through. But an easy to navigate healthcare system back in India did not work. Nothing worked to help Rona conceive. She simply couldn't get pregnant. And that's when the abuse began. Quote, my husband started picking on me. He wouldn't allow me to go visit my mother and at home he would find fault with my cooking and serving meals and he would find excuses to harass me. End quote. Finally, after almost 10 years of marriage without a baby, which is incredibly uncommon and frowned upon even today. So imagine what it must be like in the 1980s in Afghanistan. Rona told Shafia something she probably regretted till the day she died. She told him, quote, "Go and take another wife. What can I do?" End quote. And to my utter surprise, Shafia took that command literally, and he did in fact go and find himself another wife while also remaining married to Rona. This quote new wife was Tuba Muhammadiyah a 17 year old girl who Shafia was double the age of he was closer in age to her father than he was to her but from all accounts it doesn't feel like Shafia was conflicted about this decision at all he said after all it was Rona who told him to go get a new wife if he wanted children but not just that he also said that it was in fact Rona who had chosen who Shafia's next wife was going to be not just that it was Rona who happily planned the entire wedding reception for her husband's second marriage to a different woman at the exact same hotel Kabul's Intercontinental where she had married Shafia just a decade ago She also attended the second wedding happily. In these new wedding pictures you can see Shafia in a black suit this time and a mustache with Rona on one arm and Tuba on the other. Shafia said, quote, "She told me, children are important to us and I want you to find another woman to marry." That was her agreement, end quote. The women would affectionately call him Shafi, which by the way is an incredibly cute name for a man that I'm not sure sounds like a very good person right now. And finally, after years and years of waiting, Shafia got the news he had been waiting for. Tuba was pregnant. Pregnant with Zainab, their first ever baby daughter. At home, Rona's role in the family slowly downgraded from Shafia's first wife to Tuba's helper. She would help Tuba take care of the new baby and do work around the house while still hoping and wishing she had a child of her own. 
Despite all the help that Rona was providing to Tuba, she quickly realized Tuba's true intentions. According to Rona, Tuba had quote schemed to gradually separate end quote her from Shafia. Quote after their son Hamid was born, happiness had left me, wrote Rona. What began as an organic division of labor between the two wives, by the way it feels really weird saying two wives and division of labor, but what began as an organic division of labor between them soon turned into rigid differences that inevitably led to differential and preferential treatment of Rona and Tuba. According to Friscolanti in his book, in a diary dripping with heartache, Seher's arrival in October of 1991 was a rare moment of joy. Tuba, quote, gave the baby girl to Rona to raise as her own. But that sign of generosity came like a Trojan horse. It wasn't long before Tuba proclaimed, Shafi would stay three nights with me and one night with you. Because Tuba had given Seher to Rona, Rona agreed. And soon the inevitable transpired. Shafia stopped sleeping with his first wife altogether. Now Shafia had three children with Tuba, one of whom was being raised by Rona. Rona's baby Seher was still young when Afghanistan's civil war engulfed the country in a wave of violence, killing and bloodshed. The Shafias decided they were going to free their home country and make a new home somewhere else, all six of them together. But imagine, a road trip involving fleeing from your home country had a better result than a family road trip to Niagara Falls. The new country they picked was Pakistan. By the time the family of six settled in Pakistan, Tuba was pregnant again with her fourth child, another daughter whose identity is protected by the publication ban. We'll call her A. In Pakistan, a second son was also born, who we'll call B. After that was born Geeti, the youngest daughter found dead inside the drowned car. After her birth, the family decided to move again this time to the United Arab Emirates. In the UAE, Shafia's business took off in a way it never had before. Monetarily, the family was doing very, very well. Now, the UAE is unlike other Middle Eastern countries. It was especially very different from Pakistan and Afghanistan. The UAE, and more specifically Dubai, where the family settled, had a more liberal vibe to it. And that's not accidental. It was made to be a tourist spot and an expat location, and thus the values are slightly loosened and more freedoms are guaranteed to more people, relatively speaking. According to Friscolanti, it was here that the children were first exposed to Western culture. The children attended a private American school where they wore uniforms, learned to speak English, and met kids from all around the world. But despite all this financial success and the joy of so many children and a full household, for Rona, life only seemed to be getting worse than before. Tuba would be granted freedoms like learning how to drive and spending crazy amounts of money on buying whatever she wanted while she worked her way up to become Shafia's preferred wife. In Dubai, Tuba again gave birth for the final time. This was baby C, who's now in foster care and is subject to the same publication ban as her siblings. 
But the UAE was never meant to be the Shafia family's final home. After all, the UAE would never offer them permanent citizenship. It only does that for natural citizens. So a new home had to be found. They considered the idea of going to New Zealand, but Rona failed to pass a medical test. They then moved to Australia for a while and then returned to Dubai within a year. But by 2007, they had finally found a new home. Canada. Friscolanti says Shafia used Quebec's immigrant investor program, which provides visas to affluent foreigners in exchange for, among other things, a hefty $400,000 check made out to the province. Mind you, that's more than a quarter of a million dollars in 2007 money. But, quote, Shafia had no trouble covering the cost. His only challenge was figuring out how to hide the truth about his two wives, a violation of Canadian law that would have certainly derailed his application. In the end, he listed only one spouse on his paperwork, end quote. Surprise, surprise, you all, that one spouse was Tuba. In June of 2007, the entire family boarded a plane to Canada, but Rona wasn't on that flight. She was sent to live with her relatives in Europe while Shafia came up with a plan to bring her to Canada. By the fall of 2007, six months after everyone else had arrived, Rona was finally on her way to Canada. She entered the country on a temporary visitor visa given on the basis of a lie. She said she was her husband's cousin and live-in nanny for the family. Now, while researching for this episode, I thought deeply about why Western countries and even most Asian countries now had banned the practice of polygamy. Why can't men have more than one wife? What is wrong with that as long as everyone consents to the new marriage? I don't have a concrete answer to these questions. I'm sure part of the reason is that society is still far from treating men and women the same way. And so society would never accept a woman with multiple husbands just as easily as it would accept a man with multiple wives. This would naturally create an unjust and incredibly skewed sexist dynamic in marriages, just as it has in so many Middle Eastern countries. Another reason might be basic human psychology and our propensity for jealousy and biological need for exclusivity. And this case shows us why polygamy can be problematic, incredibly problematic, in a society that hasn't yet achieved equality between the sexes. Rona was reduced to a tool for the family. Yes, Shafia continued to be married to her, but not because he was in love with her or he respected her. He probably continued to be married to her because he was an incredibly conservative man and to divorce his first wife went against his conservative values. And imagine this. The entire family and all the friends of the couple knew that Rona was his first wife, but had gone to Canada as his children's nanny. But they hid this fact from the Canadian government. After reaching Canada too, Tuba continued to treat Rona as a second-class citizen in her own home. Quote, your life is in my hands, she would say. You are my servant. Rona would sleep in a bedroom with Geeti and Seher while Shafia would sleep with Tuba. Yes, Shafia had moved his daughters to a free country where women were to be treated as equals. Yes, he had given them more money than they knew what to do with. Yes, he had given them the freedom to eat whatever they want and buy whatever they want and live in the most expensive neighbourhood there was. 
but he kept them all captive in a cage of his orthodox values he had suffocated every ounce of true freedom any human being longs for in his mind just talking to a strange boy was enough to destroy the family's reputation but it would be a mistake to think that shafia was the only regressive member of the family imposing his will on everyone else tuba played an equal role in this and together tuba and shafia raised some of their children to adopt these values too when shafia wasn't at home away at business in dubai hamid was left as the in charge of the house even though zainab was older than him and hamid emulated his father's behavior to the t he would impose curfews on his sisters that he didn't impose on himself and he wouldn't hesitate to hit them if they defied him Siblings A and B had also been conditioned to spy on Zainab, Seher and Geeti and snitch on them when they did something that Shafia wouldn't approve of. The kids were all enrolled in the same Montreal school in February 2008 when a Pakistani classmate named Amar Wahid sent Zainab a Valentine's Day note. She responded with so much fear. Quote, "Be aware of my bro." If my bro is around act like a complete stranger. We'll talk if my bro is not around because I don't want to give him the slightest idea that we are friends. End quote. But if any of you have ever tried to hide a relationship from your family members, I'm sure you know it rarely ever works. A month after this conversation between Zainab and Wahid, while her parents were in Dubai, she invited Wahid to her house, but she had no idea that Hamid was on his way to the house at the same time. In his book Friskolanti says, quote, "Hamid found Wahid hiding in the garage, shook his hand and asked him to leave. Zainab, 18 years old, never returned to that school." and for the next 10 months she was banished to her room she didn't go to school and couldn't leave the house without a relative at her side seher was trapped in her own silent hell she was 16 still adjusting to life in canada when her mother accused her of kissing a boy depressed and suicidal seher peeled open one of those white silica gel packets from a shoe box and mixed it with water Rona and Geeti were hysterical rushing to Seher's side after she drank it but as Rona recalled in her diary Tuba didn't budge from the kitchen quote she can go to hell let her kill herself end quote Seher survived her suicide attempt i don't know if she wishes she hadn't survived it or not but perhaps death that night would have been much easier than what she was about to endure just a few months later Then on the 7th of May 2008 one of the kids finally made a cry for help Seher had gone to her vice principal's office to reveal the details of the torture that she and her siblings were made to endure at home She told the vice principal about how Hamid would fling a pair of scissors at her hand about the suicide attempt about the pressures to wear a hijab about how her sibling A used to spy on her about how her mother had barely talked to her in months and had ordered the other kids to ignore her too The principal had called a child welfare agency and made Seher talk to them When the worker at the agency asked Seher what she wanted Seher said something that broke my heart quote i want my mother to speak to me she told the worker she was wishing to die that day but didn't know how to kill herself 
A kid saying she was wanting to kill herself that day was obviously a big deal. The welfare agency declared this call a code 1 and asked a worker named Jean Rowe to visit Seher at the high school. But by the time Jean Rowe reached the high school, Seher had changed. She was still crying but took back everything she had said. She denied it all. She just kept repeating the phrase, quote, "I don't want you to meet with my parents." End quote. Even though Jean Rowe couldn't do much about the situation that day, she decided to revisit Seher at the high school a few days later and was shocked at what she saw. Seher in a hijab. But despite that, Seher didn't seem like she was at risk that day. In fact, she kept saying that she wanted to go home. And so Jean Rowe closed the case. It was obvious that Seher had changed her story out of the fear that her parents would find out that she had revealed all these intimate family details to the school. All this meant was that the situation back at home was still just as bad and somehow getting worse every day. Everyone in that house except for maybe Shafia, Tuba and Hamid was unhappy. Rona would call her friends and family and just keep crying saying things like quote I'm fed up with my life and I want God to finish my life I want to be in an accident end quote She would talk about how her husband would hit her not let her do anything for her own sake and leave no stone unturned in trying to humiliate her Unfortunately Rona's wish to be in an accident came true When Zainab was finally allowed to go to school almost a year later, she was put in a different school altogether, away from the guy she wanted to date. But rebellious as she was, she still stayed in contact with him. She emailed him, quote, "I miss you bad. I still remember the way you told me you love me the first time. Baby, work hard. Make something out of yourself. I will be so happy." End quote. Then by the end of 2009 she and Wahid had started meeting again. A part of me wants to go back in time and tell Zainab to not do this, to not respond to Wahid, to not write this email, to not sneak out of the house to meet him, just so that maybe she could save her life. But where was the end to all of this? Even if she let Wahid go and obeyed her father's orders for a while, would there ever come a time where he would let her live life on her own terms? I doubt it. It almost seems like there was no solution. But Zainab's rebellion wasn't just with her own life. She also introduced Seher to a boy she thought that Seher would get along with. This boy was Ricardo Santres, an immigrant from Honduras who was 4 years older than Seher. Santres only spoke Spanish and Seher only English, but the two actually liked each other. It was a typical high school crush relationship. Despite hardly being able to communicate the two began meeting and even going on double dates with Zainab and Wahid. If Zainab and Seher were rebels, 13-year-old Geeti was a whole new level of defiant. She knew about Seher and Santres and about Zainab and Wahid and she kept it all a secret. Geeti unlike her older siblings had never lived in Afghanistan. She had grown up in the much more progressive Dubai. And now having lived her teenage years in Canada, she had absolutely no interest in following her father's rules and she didn't care if he knew it. She's remembered as a young girl who loved makeup and designer clothes and skipping school and on the days that she didn't skip school, she hid out in the bathroom. 
This rebellious yearning for freedom was intolerable for Shafia. Which is why, on one evening in April of 2009, when Geeti returned slightly late from the mall with her sister A and brother B, Shafia was so angry that he and Hamid hit all three of the siblings mercilessly that night. A and B, who would snitch on their siblings, would later say that their father hadn't hit them badly at all. But Geeti wasn't afraid of telling the truth. While all of this abuse was unfolding in the house, Zainab was reaching her tipping point. Days after this small incident, she wrote a note. All it said was, I want to live my own life. She ran away. A scared Zainab had gone to a woman's shelter while at home, Hamid had placed a 911 call to find her. If Zainab's tipping point led her to run away, her running away pushed Shafia over his tipping point. This was it. He had had enough of the rebellion and the attitude and the defiance. His unmarried daughter of 19 years couldn't be out in the world unsupervised. But he didn't think that because he cared for his daughter's safety. He thought that because in his mind, she belonged to him much like his house belonged to him or his car belonged to him. Her being out in the world was a stamp of failure on his masculinity. His daughter could be out there having sex after all. When Zainab ran away, the news reached her siblings in school. Seher, Geeti, A and B were so terrified to go back home that afternoon, so incredibly afraid of how mad their father would be, that they ran over to a stranger's house instead and asked this stranger to call 911. This should have been incredibly alarming to the 911 operators because this was the third 911 call related to the Shafia house made just that afternoon. When the police arrived at the scene, they found all four kids standing on the side of a street, terrified to go back home. One of the constables on the scene pulled the kids aside and interviewed each of them alone, and the kids revealed everything. They told them about the mall incident, about Shafia pulling their hair in anger, about how Hamid regularly punched them in the face, about how Shafia often threatened to kill them and, quote, tear them apart. There were visible marks of injuries on the kids too. While the kids were outside being interviewed by the constable, Shafia returned home. He parked his car in the driveway and stepped out. According to the constable, he just looked at the kids and they all stopped talking. A started crying and immediately said that everything that she had said up until now was a lie. But despite all of this, the cops did nothing that evening. They left. But they returned on the 20th of April, the Monday after Zainab had left her home, to re-interview the children at their school instead of the home. This time, it was a seasoned child abuse detective of the Montreal PD who was meeting with the children. When this detective reached the school, she noticed B wasn't there that day, but they interviewed the other three. A kept taking back her story, claiming that she had lied that day, but the other three kids didn't back down. Geeti went so far as to say that she wanted to immediately be placed in foster care. Despite these testimonies, again, no charges, zilch, nothing, nothing was levied. This case file too was closed. Zainab had run away and was still in hiding while the kids were more afraid than ever to go back home. 
In the midst of all of this, Rona overheard a conversation between Chafia, Ahmed and Tuba that shook her to her core. Quote, I will go to Afghanistan, I will prepare the documents, I will sell my property and I will kill Zainab. What about the other one? One of them asked Shafia. I will kill the other one too, he responded. When Rona told this story to her sister back in France, she said she was sure that the other one was her. She was shivering, her sister said. She was afraid. I told her, don't be afraid. This is not Afghanistan. This is not Dubai. This is Canada. Nothing will happen. End quote. I guess you can take Shafia out of Afghanistan, but not the sexism out of Shafia. This murderous plot was now underway. But how did a plan to murder just Zainab and possibly Rona develop into a plan to murder Seher and Geeti too? How did they bring Zainab back from the shelter? What went down inside that Nissan Sentra just moments before it drowned inside the Kingston Lock, killing four women whose worst mistake was wanting to be free? To find out, come back to part three of the Shafia family murders.